eavesdropping is welcome on the desert's best conversations with Charlie Dyer. In the late 1970s, our guest today learned that the great documentary photographer Dorothea Lang had photographed his grandparents, father and aunt in 1942 as they awaited a bus in Oakland to begin their journey into a Japanese detention camp. Several years later, while looking through over 900 of Lang's photographs at the National Archives, he found the original images of his family and of many others. He grew up in California and knew very little about the incarceration of Japanese people until his teens. Then he started asking his parents about their experiences, but they wouldn't talk. So he decided to track down the subjects of many of the famous photos. Thank you so much, Paul Kitagaki Jr., for being here today on Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. Thank you. My pleasure. Paul's new book is Behind Barbed Wire, Searching for Japanese Americans Incarcerated During World War II. Paul is a photographer and videographer and has been published in news outlets all around the world, including National Geographic, Time, Smithsonian, and Sports Illustrated. His powerful images are published daily in the Sacramento Bee. And during his career, Paul has photographed the Olympics, the World Series, and Super Bowls. He covered national and international tours from Vietnam to Iraq. Paul was a staff member of the San Jose Mercury News, which won a Pulitzer Prize in 1990 for general news reporting. Starting in 2005, he traveled the country to find men and women who lived through the incarceration. Paul photographed them and collected oral and personal histories, which he turned into a national traveling exhibition in 2015 called Gambit, Legacy of an Enduring Spirit, Triumphing Over Adversity. Check it all out on his website. That's kitagakiphoto.com. And his his last name is spelled K-I-T-A-G-A-K-I. Well, between March and August of 1942, the United States government forcefully relocated more than 110,000 Japanese Americans. Almost 70% of them were American citizens from the West Coast in what came to be called the internment. Talk about the government's justification, Paul. There's a lot of pressure from um, business groups and stuff because of the Japanese presence in, in the United States. Um, Congress had passed a, um, an immigration act barring in 1924, barring any more Japanese further immigration from Japan. And that this Japanese faced a lot of discrimination and racism um, leading up to Pearl Harbor. So after Pearl Harbor, there's quite quite a fear that there might be Japanese sabotage, which there was never any Japanese sabotage, American sabotage. And um, there's quite a big bunch of fear from the attack on Pearl Harbor and um, more congressional pressure and all that kind of stuff eventually ended up in um, President um, Franklin D. Roosevelt signing Executive Order 9066, which um, removed all the Japanese Americans from the West Coast. And like many third-generation Japanese Americans, or, or what you call sensei, you learned in history class that your parents and grandparents were part of the people who were forcefully removed from their homes and taken to these incarceration camps during World War II. Were you upset or angry with your parents for not telling you about that themselves? Well, no. I mean, it was very amazing. I was taking American history class. I was in the 10th grade. And um, I learned that they were forcibly removed from their homes and put in these concentration camps. And I was like really shocked. I go, how can that happen? They're American citizens. How can they be removed from their homes and locked up? 
So when I asked my parents about it, I mean, they really didn't want to talk about it. And many people in my generation, their parents or grandparents didn't talk about their experience of the incarceration camps. So um, when I asked my mom, I mean, you know, like growing up as a kid, I was a Boy Scout and everything. So, you know, you would think in my family would always go camping. So you'd you'd hear them talk to other Japanese Americans of their generation, say, you know, about camp, like what camp were you in and stuff. But like it didn't register when I was a kid. And so camp had a totally different meaning for me being a Boy Scout, you know, going on a camping trip or going on a, you know, on a fun trip. Right. This was not a fun thing for them. Well, Dorothea Lang had photographed your family in 1942 as they waited for that bus in Oakland to begin their journey into detention. Talk about how you found those photographs and and how did it feel to see them? Well, it's very interesting. My uncle, who's an artist in San Francisco, Nobo Kitagaki, when I started my journey as a photographer, he told me that Dorothea Lang had photographed our family during World War II. So... I really wanted to know what those photographs looked like. So in 1984, I was back in um, Washington, D.C., and I searched through the Library of Congress and the National Archives, and I didn't know what the photo was going to look like. I had no idea. And uh, so I was looking through these boxes of photographs. I call them shoe boxes because all the pictures are contact sheets of the 4x5 picture with a caption on the back and they're all in like cellophane things so you flip through these boxes looking for the pictures and it was near the last box that I found the uh, photograph of my grandparents and my dad and my aunt and I was really shocked because there's my grandmother and my grandfather looking at at this Caucasian lady smiling I'm I'm like what's going on then you see my dad who's looking at it and looks very like shocked and forlorn forlorn and lost. And then you have my aunt who's sitting there. I and it took years to find out who that lady was um, who they were smiling at. And my dad had told me, oh yeah, that was our friend Dorothea Hightower. And she was wishing my the family off goodbye. And her family had also generously stored a lot of their personal belongings while they were away during the war. Well, Paul, talk about how the images of the incarceration, especially these ones of Dorothea Langs, opened you up to the humanity and, and suffering of those people who were imprisoned. Right after I learned about the uh, internment in 1970, it wasn't until 1972, and I was hungry for information, what the experience was like, what it looked like. And I discovered this book in 1972 called um, Executive Order 9066. It was put out by the California Historical Society. And in that book, it it documented, it had many of the, for me, the iconic pictures that Dorothy Lang had photographed during the incarceration, her documentation of the forced removal in the Bay Area, um, some of the pictures in Manzanar, and they were just incredible images. Her pictures had um, showed the hardship and showed the emotional toll that was happening with, with the Japanese American community during this terrible tragedy. Well, well after the war, your dad became a high school teacher. What did he tell his students about his wartime experiences? Yeah, my dad was trying to tell us, he was a teacher in San Francisco, you know, talking to the kids and the kids, he was saying, you know, I was locked up, you know, in a concentration camp, internment camp during World War II. And the kids would say, oh, come on, Mr. K, you're jiving me. You know, they just couldn't believe that something like that could happen to, to you or for them. 
why was the task of tracking down the subjects of the pictures in eventually your book, but was started as this traveling expedition, so difficult? Your process kind of reads like a detective story. So how did you go about finding the people pictured? It's very incredible. Um, most of the photographs have no names on them. There's, it might have a, the date the photograph was taken, the place, but no name. So what I had to do was I took my photographs I made a poster board. I took it out to, um, <clears throat> excuse me, this um, Buddhist temple in Sacramento. They have a summer festival where the whole community comes through. And I put this board up there, and I I wanted to see if somebody could identify some of the people in there. That was the only way to do it. And I, everybody, the festival finished, and I got not one call, not one ID from that picture. So then somebody else suggested there's a Japanese American Methodist church in Sacramento. Mm. And they have a lunch for the you know Japanese American community, the older people. So I brought the poster board, same poster board down there, and um, I got a hit on one of the on on somebody new who's in the photograph. So that's how I got started. And it took me like over seven years to find like maybe fifteen people. It took that long, and then I had an, an exhibit in 2012. I did a story in 2012 on the 70th anniversary of um, Executive Order 9066. And then um, I got a few more. I was telling people I'm looking for more people. And I got found a few more people. Then we had a um, we had an exhibit at the Barrier BART station in, in San Bruno, the San Bruno Barrier BART station. And that was the site of the Tanfran uh, Assembly Center where over 8,000 Japanese Americans in the San Francisco Bay Area were held until they were sent to, most of them were sent to Topaz, Utah, um, where the was a permanent uh, war relocation center or internment camp. So that made it quite difficult. So it took a long time and to find them. And the other thing was very interesting is since a lot of the Japanese Americans didn't talk about it, it was very hard when I tried to call them, once I identified somebody and tracked them down, was to get them to participate. I mean, it's one thing that, you know, it's hard enough to get somebody to participate when you want to take their photograph, but I also want to do an interview like a before and after what happened with their family. And there's a Japanese con concept called Enro where you don't talk about yourself. You just kind of keep your stuff, your feelings to yourself. And it, it took a long time to kind of break that down and, and have them share their story because they were the only ones who could share what happened to them. Well, Paul, what kind of responsibility did you feel about learning that some of these people had never before talked about their experiences? I mean, one person you talked to, Jimmy Yamachi, collapsed after you took a few photographs, and you helped him get to the hospital where he recovered from a heart attack. So talk about how that made you feel. Well, Jimmy, actually, um, there was a, a Tule Lake pilgrimage, and Jimmy's very integrated with that. And he's also very integrated, and he started the Sap San Jose Japanese historical museum but um jimmy had had a whole day of touring of uh, the pilgrimage people coming through the jail that he'd helped built at tule lake and he explained it all and it was a very hot day so at the very end of the day i had a photo session with him inside the jail and i was shooting a few photos of him and um he collapsed on me and there's just myself and two other people there so we were able to pick him up and they, you know, take him to the hospital. Mm -hmm. But Jimmy is very, he was 
he felt it's very so important to share the story with so many different people because not enough there's not enough written in history books or taught in the school so it's very important to to share the story so this you know mostly all the other all these subjects really people want them other people to know so this doesn't happen again well some of the people you talked with were actually jailed after the attack on pearl harbor what were their crimes you know, a lot of the people who were jailed, and they were community leaders, some were Buddhist priests, some were Japanese teachers, and that was their only crime, um, that they were part of the, the community leaders and um, and just religious leaders. Well, a number of the people you interviewed had family members actually die in the camp. So tell us about some of them and the circumstances of their deaths. Yeah, one of my subjects, there's a famous Dorothea Lange photograph of two girls um, pledging allegiance to the flag in San Francisco. And one, and both girls, both their parents had, were taken away by the FBI right after Pearl Harbor. One woman, um, Helena Nakamura Mayor Har, her, her father had a, uh, owned this American fish market in San Francisco. And he was incarcerated right away. I think he was one of the community leaders. And she remembers that these men in fedora hats came to the house and hurriedly took them out of the house. And she was sitting at the top of the staircase watching this all happen. And then she says she remembers these flashing lights and he was gone and that was it. And they didn't see him for another 15 months. And her other classmate, Marianne Yahiro, her mom was a Japanese teacher. She spoke, you know, I mean, she taught Japanese and her mom was taken away right away. And she didn't see her mom until they, her mom had passed away at age 51 when they brought her body back to the Topaz uh, War Relocation Center in, in Utah, where they had the funeral. And what was really interesting, what um, Mary's, Mary um, Ann said was, um, it says she said it was like really traumatic because her body came back and we had this funeral in Topaz. And then she said it was hard for me being a child, seeing her like that when I hadn't seen her in such a long time. But the most incredible thing she said was, but I didn't have any bitterness. Well, you use a Japanese word to capture the strength and spirit of those who survived that experience. Gambat? So what does that yeah. mean? Yeah, gambate, it means um, to persevere, to keep on going no matter what. And I think this this is everything that their generation had done and their grandparents, and even after the war, I mean, they had to rebuild their lives. Um, a, lot of, a lot of people lost their home, their businesses, um, and they had to restart their lives. And they just kept on, they had that inner strength to move on. And that's, for me, that's what that word means, gambate. Did the United States ever give reparations to the people who were incarcerated? And in what form was that? Yeah, it wasn't until um, 1988 that the United States um, um, gave reparations. And what they did was, um, which was the Congress passed the Civil Liberties Act of 1988 and President Reagan signed it into law. And this law um, required payment and and an apology to the survivors of the incarceration. And so if you're a survivor and you're still living, you got $20,000 in cash. But the most important thing for most most of the survivors I've spoken to was not so much the cash, was the letter of apology that the government had done wrong. Um, 
And that was the most important thing for a lot of the a lot of the people I had spoken to. Well, despite the anti-Muslim sentiment that has surfaced in the United States since 9-11, Tomiko Jean Kono, who spent the war years at Heart Mountain Relocation Center in Cody, Wyoming, does not think a mass incarceration could happen again. Why is that, Paul? I, I think she thinks that she thinks that like um, people are more assertive today. I mean, back in the 40s, we don't we didn't have social media. We don't have so many different ways to communicate now that we do now. Um, we have all the TV stations, and um, today we have all these. Back in the day, we didn't have that. Now, today, we have so many more things like that, and there's so many more groups and activists that speak out on behalf of other people. Well, one of those iconic photographs of the incarceration was of Fumiko Hayashida carrying her sleeping 13-month-old baby, Natalie, waiting for the ferry on the first day of their forced removal. And Natalie grew up to be an activist and, and was happy to, to speak out after 9-11. So tell us about that, Paul. Yeah, I mean, Natalie was, uh, her mom was like a third-generation Japanese-American, grew up on Bainbridge Island. That's when they're leaving there, the first group to leave the Bainbridge Island, Seattle, and they're the first group to arrive in the Manzanar um, internment camp. But um, Natalie, she goes, she always grew up as an um, uh, activist. Um, she spent most of her adult life living in Texas, and she served on the city council and has been a pro-tem mayor of El Lago, Texas, which is by Houston. But when the, like we were speaking earlier, when the, um, the JCL, you know, the Japanese American Citizen League started the redress pro- progress, um, which became, you know, the civil, you know, which led to the um, uh, reparation and apology. She felt that that was the right thing to do. And she was really happy to speak out after 9-11 when people were talking about locking up those or interning those who look like those who had done the bombing. And she said, hey, wait a minute, that's wrong. And that's, and, and it happened to me. The same thing happened in World War II. So that's why she felt so strong about speaking out. Well, Jimmy, who we talked about a little earlier, was one of 27 draft resistors who went on trial in 1944. Why did the, the judge drop all the charges against the young men? What, what happened to them after that trial? Well, for Jimmy Yamichi, he was, um, he was a draft resistor. He, he felt like his citizenship was violated. You know, he figured if he said, if I, if I was outside of the camp, be giving my rights as a U.S. citizen, I would gladly join the army. But he felt that the government had um, betrayed him and locked him up behind war. So he had no free will. And, and the judge luckily um, agreed with him and the 27 others. He felt that they, their rights as American citizens, they were locked up behind prison walls. And so they didn't have a choice of free will. So he, dismissed the charges. Not so much like there was 61 um, others up in Heart Mountain who the federal judge did the opposite. He They, they resisted the draft and they um, were locked up in federal prison until the end of the war, till after, actually till after the end of the war. A number of the people with whom you spoke expressed concerns that what happened to them could actually happen to other people in this country. So tell us some more about what they said to you, Paul. There's another guy, Walter Suckaway, who's a he's in this one photograph that Dorothy Ng shot of him and his grandfather. He's a little baby on top of his grandfather's shoulder. And he thinks it's he, he feels like it's very important to keep telling the story of the in, internment. Because he said, like, if you talk to young kids today, 
they don't even know what you're talking about. They go, what internment camp? What's that? So it's important for them to, to know what happened. But he doesn't really think history will repeat himself either, because I think he doesn't think that the government can pull this thing off now. He thinks there there'd be like civil unrest or a lot of protests and stuff. So after all these years of doing all this research and, and putting your family sort of front and center in this project when they didn't really want to talk about any of this, how have they uh, evolved in uh, over the years and in, in being center stage like this, Paul? Well, my dad like was an educator, so I think he's proud of the work I've done because I haven't just told our family story. I've told the, for me, it wasn't just telling my family stories about telling the whole collective uh, Japanese community story. There are so many of those iconic photographs that Dorothy Lang and, and some of the other war relocation authority photographers had taken and some of the photos that Ansel Evans had taken. And those photos are so um, iconic and embedded in the, in the history of the incarceration. So to learn about those, those faces in those, you know, the subjects in the in the pictures and learn, they're not just, you know, everybody was given a number and everybody is more than a number. These are humans with, with stories of good things and bad things that happened to them and how they persevered over this tragic event. Paul Kitagaki Jr. is our guest today on Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. The new book is Behind Barbed Wire, Searching for Japanese Americans Incarcerated During World War II. Check out his website, kitagakiphoto.com. Thank you so much for being here today on Conversations. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Charlie. 